We will pick it up today where we had left off last time. And this is sort of a part two of our last message. Let's read our passage, Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22. The title of the message this morning is God's Unified Temple. Chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, hear the word of God. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built into a dwelling of God. If you're taking notes, verse 19, the heading will be God's people who make up this temple. Verse 20 will be God's foundation for the temple. And verses 21 to 22 will be God's purpose for this temple. Now in verses 11 to 22, like we looked at last time, the overarching theme is unity. And we examine how this unity in the body of Christ came to be. This unity comes from Jesus Christ. And we looked at verses 11 to 18. It is Christ who makes two groups, both Jew and Gentile, into one new man. One new man metaphorically speaking about the church. And in our passage last time and today, we see several metaphors that describe the church. Now, metaphor is a comparison uh, between two or more things. It could be figurative. Uh, Descriptive language that's often symbolic, and it helps in making a comparison. may not necessarily be a literal object, though. Literal truth. And Paul's going to use multiple metaphors in today's passage when he speaks about the corporate nature of the body of Christ. The church of Jesus Christ. For example, some of the metaphors in verse 19. Now Gentiles are now fellow citizens with the saints. Members of God's household. In verse 21, he calls the church, refers to it as a building. Now in verses 21 and 22, we see the resolve of this unity. How this unity culminates. In the text, we are unified members. The metaphor he's going to use, growing into a holy temple. A dwelling of God, in verse 22. Now, when thinking of the church, most people, myself included, I don't normally think of the church as a temple. Uh, It's not the first thing that comes to mind. But what is the significance of the temple, as Paul is writing here? Well, we look at the Old Testament we conclude several things. First, there was a tabernacle that had been built by Moses as Yahweh decided he would dwell with his covenant people. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. Now, very specific construction was designed in this tabernacle. And then a tent would accompany Israel through the wilderness, which the glory of God would dwell among them. God dwelt in the tabernacle, filling it with such glory that not even Moses could enter it. 
This was in Exodus 40, verses 34 to 38. But once Israel settled into their own land, the temple would be the permanent representation of God's dwelling place among his covenant people. In 1 Kings 8, 10 and 11, the Jerusalem temple, tabernacle, was replaced by the temple built by King Solomon. So the tabernacle now became a temple built by King Solomon. And just as the presence of God in the Old Testament times filled the first tabernacle and later the temple, we see in our text that now God also dwells in His temple, the church, by His Spirit. God dwells with His people. Now, who are these people? Well, the people of this temple, we see in verse 19, speaking to the Gentile, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. These are God's unified people. These are citizens of God's kingdom. Members of God's household, a family of God, both Jew and Gentile. Jews who encompass many nations, as per Acts 2.5, and Gentiles, former pagans from all nations. Now, specifically addressed to the Gentiles that they are no longer strangers and aliens. This is a reiteration of verses 11 and 12, chapter 2. What they were, what they now are. Once strangers to the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants and promises of God. They were once subjects of social and spiritual alienation. And discrimination, for that matter. And the discrimination went both ways between parties. As aliens, they're foreigners. They have no citizenship to God's kingdom. They are not part of God's kingdom at that point. They were without God, without hope. They were without Christ. Now, when we say someone is without God, yes, the image of God dwells in a man and woman. They made in the image of God. And maybe God's uh, common grace can be bestowed upon people. But they are not part of the covenant of God. They are not part of the family of God. They are not the people of God. They were not a people, but now they are of the family. Citizens with the saints. So, how did this come to be? By adoption. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 5. He predestined these Gentiles to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. So now they are unified citizens with the saints. Saints called out, called out people, both Jew and Gentile. Fellow fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Full citizenship. They didn't just get a piece of the covenant cake or a crumb. They got the whole cake. Full citizenship with all the rights and blessings and all the benefits. No longer strangers to the covenants and promises of God. Truly a rags to riches story as the Gentiles were in a state of spiritual poverty before. And now in Ephesians, they have become spiritually rich just as we are. If you are in Jesus Christ today, you are spiritually rich. Praise the Lord. 
Now, Paul storms the gate with this reality in chapter 1. Right out of the gate in this epistle, he says, you've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places with Christ. And in verses 4 to 14, he described all the blessings. There is now equality in Christ. These are who these people are. There is no caste system. There is no hierarchy in God's kingdom. Equal citizenship in the kingdom of God as Christ broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now we see the imagery in the worship area in the temple verses. We looked at that last time. But the irony is this, that the Gentile was not allowed in that temple. They were not allowed in that area. It was strict. They were like, keep out or else you're going to die. And the irony is now, with past these strict prohibitions, the Gentiles were formally kept out. They were outsiders to the family of God. They are now part of God's temple. For he himself is our peace and as he made the two groups into one. God's unified people. So now, who are these people? Both Jew and Gentile incorporated into Christ's body. An example of this Paul would give in, in Romans chapter 11, verses 17 to 24, just a description. Gentile branches are grafted into the promises and covenants of Israel. It describes the cutting off of the natural branches, the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, and the grafting in of unnatural branches into an olive tree. This is no room for arrogance or boasting on either party. This is by grace. A mystery that was not fully revealed, and we see that, Paul's going to speak about this in chapter 3, has now been revealed. Something that did not exist. The church. The church as a multitude of nations. Something that only God can do, and something that only God can create this unity, this positional unity. And Paul elaborates this in his letters because he wants all the churches to know, the church of Rome, the church of Galatia, and certainly this Ephesian church. For example, in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's going to reiterate this also in Romans. Consider what he writes in Romans 10, 12, and 13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Brethren, a citizen of this kingdom, these people are not defined by culture. We're not defined by ethnicity. We're not defined by race. Christianity is not a Gentile thing. It's not a, a Jewish thing. It's not a black thing. It's not a white thing. It is those who have come to, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, who now make up these people the church. Because you have to understand something. You're an American citizen for the most part here today. Your primary citizenship is in heaven. Paul writes in Philippians 3.20, Our identity transcends all divisions. 
between peoples, whether status, culture, gender. And currently, the scheme of our culture now is to create division. That's where they're going with this. Whether it be racial, whether it be social, you name it. Now, we must be concerned for the world, but we must be concerned for the body of Christ. How does this affect God's people? What God did in the formation of the church transcends all these philosophies, all these satanic strategies and ideologies of man. It's important that God's unified people do not succumb to these strategies of this upside-down culture. That we don't coalesce to the woke mobs that construct these plans and schemes that cause division. Let's not reconstruct barriers that Christ has deconstructed. We are one in Christ. We are the family of God. The household of God, Paul writes. This is multiple people in the family of God. Now, Within the family, there are multiple families. I kind of think of it as initially a two-family house. Okay, the Jew and the Gentile in the two-family house. But you've seen sometimes when people add extensions... This extension is still going. It's now becoming a skyscraper. There are multiple families that live in this household. In all regions of the world, the church is being built up. It's an extended. Throughout this place here in Staten Island, the church is, the church is growing in Iran. It's growing in Africa. The church of Jesus Christ, the people of God, the unified people will grow, will prevail. Now, the people are considered to be building blocks to this temple. Where do we see this? 1 Peter 2.5 You also as living stones are being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Living stones, Peter, a metaphor describing the people of God, all shapes and sizes. All nations, living stones, are being joined together to form the temple. Now, this building, this household that culminates into a temple, has been designed by God. And it's a very specific and distinct design. Therefore, it has a very specific foundation. As we look at verse 20. The foundation of this temple. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. Now the unity, this temple has unity within the living stones, its people. But it also has a unity in its foundation. The apostles, the prophets. With Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This does not change. This never will change. And it never has. Now let's look at this. These are New Testament apostles and prophets. And they make up the foundation. Now who are the apostles? Those who have been with Jesus and witnessed his resurrection. That's an apostle. In the case of Paul, he, he would have received special revelation of the risen Christ. You see that in Acts 9. And those who had been commissioned by Jesus to be founders of the church. Founders of this temple. Who are the prophets? 
New Testament prophets that conveyed special revelation to the early church. The functions included predictions, exhortation, encouragement, and warnings. Let me speak a little bit about what this prophecy is. We must understand that as first as 2 Peter 1 speaks, writes it here, but know that first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You can be sure what we have is a firm foundation like we sung about. An immovable truth in the word of God based on this foundation of the apostles and the prophets. There is a doctrinal unity with this temple. And doctrine is the structural material in the foundation. And it's a firm foundation. And the gospel and the truths that are inseparable to it are part of the foundation. Let's consider the cornerstone. Now, all stones of the structure had to rest on the cornerstone. All teaching of the church is to flow from the apostles, prophets, with Christ being the chief cornerstone. What is this? The cornerstone had a prophetic design. And it was a designation foretold by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. 1 Peter 2, 7 speaks of this cornerstone being Jesus Christ. And Psalm 118.22, the stone that the builders rejected has become a chief cornerstone. This cornerstone is not an accident. Now, the significance of the architecture at that time. Buildings were built around a cornerstone. I want to explain how important the cornerstone is. The cornerstone is placed at a juncture of two primary walls. A stone was also foundational as it supported the entire structure. The cornerstone, this is. The cornerstone where it held all the parts of the building together because it's the cornerstone that binds the structure. The cornerstone decides the architectural unity and the symmetry. The dimensions all come from the cornerstone. And interesting, all other stones architecturally have to adjust to that. And it leads us to verses 21 to 22. What is the purpose of this temple? In him, the whole building, this is Christ, the cornerstone, being fitted together is growing into a holy temple of God. Verse 21, we stop there. Being built into a holy temple, God's temple by God's design. Now, Paul was going to resolve the argument he made for verses 11 to 22 about this unity in this metaphor of temple. How would this imagery have been perceived when it was written? Remember, the Bible is for us. It was not written to us. How would they of the people in Ephesus and beyond 
we hear? How would this be perceived by them initially? Well, Paul, being a Jew, reared in physical Judaism, would have understood the importance of a temple in the Old Testament. And mind you, the temple was a physical building. The first members of the church were all Jews, for the most part. Acts 2.5. For a Jew, it was the center of a religious system. The center of their identity as God's people. A place where God would dwell with them. A place where they would present the sacrifices of their system. And probably here, Jews would have thought of Herod's temple in Jerusalem. Now, in addition, Paul understands this metaphor of temple regarding the Gentile. There were many pagan temples and sanctuaries in every town in the New Testament where Paul went. The Gentiles were primarily pagan. And they would have related to this temple, probably in Ephesus, the temple of Diana, where pagan practices would take place. Now, Paul uses... Only this metaphor of temple a couple of times, most notably in First and Second Corinthians. In First Corinthians six nineteen, he speaks of the individual believer's body being a temple. He wrote that the spirit within each believer now dwells there. Do you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you? And he gives the admonition to be holy, to abstain from from sexual immorality and all sorts of unholiness. God's presence through the Holy Spirit is with his people individually. But now Paul's going to describe in 1 Corinthians 3.16 the corporate nature. It's not just in Ephesians. He will reference in the first time in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He describes the church as a temple. When he speaks about the factions and disunity that was happening among the Corinthians. Paul tells them to understand the nature of the church. Don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So there's the individual aspect of the temple. There's also the collective aspect. And the second time we see it, Paul's going to speak about the church being a temple in the context that as it was true for Israel to maintain separation from unbelievers and things unholy, so should the church as well. But in our passage today in Ephesians, the emphasis is placed on God's presence dwelling in his people. We see that God is doing something. He's causing the saints to be fitted together, who are being built together and still growing. The foundation's in place, but the temple's still growing. Into what kind of a temple? A holy temple Of the Lord. God's temple, by God's design, God's exact specificity, God's precious and special living stones. God is not using materials that are just laying around. He's not using what's available for the project. If you're in construction, some of you may know what I I mean. These are hand-picked people that make up the temple. And this is a very specific design for the foundation of the temple, and God has his purpose in this temple as well. But it's a temple continually expanding, and God is adding to it as we speak. Now, many of you know, dealing with construction, maybe some of you have called contractors at one point or another. Maybe some of you are doing some work 
in the house contracting, undertaking some remodeling. And many building projects never go as planned. But this one is right on schedule. God is building his church into a holy temple. And it's fitting to have the aspect of holiness and temple. Why is that? It's holy because God dwells with his people. It's a new covenant temple for his new race, the church. The temple is holy, and the people of this temple are also made holy at conversion. 1 Peter 1-2, he sprinkles us with his blood. So we are holy, we are being made holy through sanctification, and we are called to be holy. And verse 22, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The temple's purpose is to become a dwelling of God in the Spirit. We are being fitted together and unified in Christ in the Spirit. And just as the presence of God dwelt in the Old Testament building, the presence now fills the church, His people. The physical temple in Jerusalem was to show that God had taken up residence. But it's not a physical temple anymore. God does not dwell in man-made temples, including church buildings. Acts 7, 48 to 50. But God now lives in this New Testament temple as he dwells in the hearts of his people by his spirit. When God dwells with his people and his people dwell with one another. And the end result is a unity with spirit-filled people and their God. Now, what does this mean to us? How does this affect us? Well, I have a good idea to some extent. But there are some implications that I want to go over with you. It was three. God is building the temple. Right? Amen? Amen. What are we called to do? Well, to some extent, we co-labor in the construction of this temple. You've got to understand something. In Ephesians 1 to 3, there are no action steps. Chapters 1 to 3. There are no imperatives. There are really no warnings. But explicitly, but implicitly, I believe that we can come... To, with some implications here and some action steps for us to take. Now, let's consider we co-labor with some extent, to some extent the construction. We have a part to play. And one of the parts we play in the construction of God's temple on earth is the Great Commission. We are part of the Great Commission. We are to partake in the Great Commission. What is it? Matthew 28, 18. That... All authority in heaven and earth has been given to the chief cornerstone. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, of all neighborhoods, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Teaching them to follow the doctrine that I have left for you. We must be confident that this temple will grow 
And we will be part of co-laboring in it. But there is also an implicit warning. We must be careful how we build. Now, we don't build the temple, but we can build on the foundation that's already there. And many will try and add to the foundation things that are not compatible, things that are structurally unsound from an architectural perspective. Now, many are becoming more subservient to the strategies of the world and the wisdom of man, and they try to name it Christ and add it to the existing foundation. And Paul gives a warning in 1 Corinthians 3.10 about adding to the foundation. According to the grace of, of God, which is was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Amen. Now in the context here, Paul is talking about loss of rewards in the Bema Seat Judgment. From from perhaps motivations and not doing things in accordance, not building correctly. But one of the most problematic areas that we're seeing the church of Jesus Christ build on the foundation, and I don't know if all of it's the true church, is when they are using the foundations of the world and the doctrines of man. And currently adding to this foundation will make the foundation structurally unsound because it's incompatible. Now, we add to the foundation from Christian Orthodox perspectives. Within the foundation, mind you, we looked at this last time, there may be denominational differences. But there is a compatibility in the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ being the chief cornerstone. There may be certain differences in theological nuances. And the EFCA, our denomination, is a great example of this. There are some who may be Cal adhere to Calvinism. There are some who adhere to Arminianism. And the eschatology, which is a secondary doctrine. Historic premillennialism. Maybe there's amillennialism, postmillennialism. Remember, in essentials unity... In non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, there may be disagreements on secondary doctrines. But as Pastor Lloyd Pulley will often say, it's a family debate. Therefore, we're called to disagree peaceably. It's important to Christ. We don't want to be those who sow discord needlessly and maybe even unintentionally. There is a unity within the foundation. Like the EFC, for example, will meet the 10 points. Now, when it comes to division, Satan loves it. He loves one who sows discord, and God hates one who sows discord. But we must be sober. We want to be together in the body of Christ. Amen. But we have to be sober and aware what we are adding to the foundation because of the divisiveness right now of the culture. One of the primary strategies we see now, because there are some isms that are now coming into the church that are not part of this foundation. 
And they will not bring unity, but disunity to the temple. One such ism making inroads into the American church is the rise of cultural Marxism. Marxism is a worldview based on German revolutionary Karl Marx, the author of the Communist Manifesto. And he views life as a struggle between oppressed, oppressors and oppressed. It's very where we're getting the fruit of the, the victimized mentality we're seeing that's so prevalent. And this view attacks the foundations of Judeo-Christian culture, the nuclear family, marriage, traditional morality, law and order. Now, I believe this is beyond the political, racial, or social realm. I think this is a spiritual issue here. Underneath all of peeling all the minutiae back. Cultural Marxism is a secular philosophy but it's also an atheistic philosophy. And it transcends into a worldview that also opposes absolute truth. It opposes Christianity and consequently God. And many are bringing this in to the church. Karl Marx said the source of all suffering and oppression is Christianity and capitalism. And we can get into capitalism some other day. That's not where I'm going with this. And a quote by Karl Marx, My object in life is to dethrone God and destroy capitalism. Do you think this is compatible to the foundation of the apostles, prophets, with Christ being the chief cornerstone? I don't think so. The world will be the world. But may the church be the church. Many want to build on these progressive leftist agendas that are making their way into the church. And many will say, what's going on? Where did this all come from? Has this been all of a sudden? The answer is no. These antichrist doctrines have been in the incubator for years in the Western world. One of the greatest proponents of a Christian worldview was the late Francis Schaeffer, way ahead of his time. He wrote a Christian manifesto, and I believe what we're seeing in our culture right now, he gives a very good root cause analysis of what we see found in a book written in 1976, How Then Shall We Live? If you ever have some extra time, I recommend reading that. Schaefer had so much insight. So what else are we to do? Needless to say, there are times when to have unity, biblical unity, we must maintain separation. Therefore, to maintain unity in God's temple, we cannot accept all things and ideologies and all philosophies for the sake of unity. We want to be together in the foundations. We want to be together in the essentials. Absolutely. But we must be sober-minded and discerning in these times. Not everything that masquerades itself as Christian is Christian. There is no unity, brethren, in lies. There is no unity when God's tr truth is perverted. We cannot make something God says is wrong, right, and then make believe we have unity. Is that correct? Are we to please God or are we to please man? Needless to say, there may need to be some separation. 
Now, true God-honoring unity may not come by simply trying to be unified. Often, the cost of unity is separation. And the Reformation was a very good example of this. In Martin Luther's 95 Thesis, Luther posted on the, the door of the castle in Wittenberg, Germany. This was written in 1517. Now, in Luther's concerns in this thesis, there were concerns about church practices, certainly. Much had to do with the sale of indulgences. But ultimately, when all was said and done, the inspiration for that thesis was doctrine was being perverted. The church was now incorporating the doctrine of man. And to maintain a practical unity, a biblical-based unity, Luther had to separate. Understand, when the cultures and doctrines of man, which is essentially Babylon, has their influence on the church, it's never a good thing. And in our modern context, we have a culture that's trying to sell a facade of unity. Boxed in hypocrisy and contradictions. And the proposition for unity is this. Let's all be unified. Agree with my sin or else. That's the proposition that you get. Unfortunately, many are falling prey to these deceptive schemes. Now, why does this happen? I kind of alluded to it. I believe it's misplaced fear. Fear of God, fear of reverence for his standards is being replaced by the fear of man. And ideologies that are not built on the foundations of the prophets and the apostles, with Christ being the chief cornerstone. This deception is the philosophy of man. And Paul was very familiar with this paradigm. He dealt with it in the Colossian church. In Colossians 2.8, he would write, See that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Now, the context is a little different. A form of Gnosticism had come in there. But this is principally the truth, that we should not be deceived by the world, by the philosophy of man that's not according to Christ. And he's going to later allude to this in Ephesians 5.14, that we should not be tossed to and fro, Carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. Needless to say, there are times to maintain unity in the temple. Separation is necessary for what fellowship can light have with darkness. Now, but I will say, I must admit, there is a temptation to be secluded from the world to stay in our little Christian cocoons. To maintain separation, yes, we must, but we cannot live life secluded in a Christian ivory tower. And this is the tension we see throughout the New Testament, that we are to be in the world and not of the world. We see that in Paul's letters. You even see that in the Gospels. But as God's temple here on earth, we are called to affect the temple to some extent. And may we be those in Christ in whom his presence, his glory is magnified. 
We just don't always want to be on the defense, but we want to be also as those who carry the presence of God on the offense. We want to be first responders to the disenfranchised of this world, engaging in missions, engaging in the Great Commission, to the homeless, to the addicted. That's our business. That's what we are to do. Now, in conclusion, the world, it appears, will seem to continue on this downward spiral, this trajectory motivated by divisions. And people who want power will do anything for it. I exhort you, we are the temple of the living God. We are the body of Christ, the church. We have the presence of God. Let's not get entangled with this nonsense. Brethren, especially young people, honor God. Stand in His truth. Contend for His truth. Live in His truth because the lies will eventually collapse. The kingdom of man will collapse. And remember, it is the meek who shall inherit the earth. We are unified positionally. Let us maintain this practical unity. As we are one in Christ, we are one in the Spirit. And where brethren dwell together in unity, the Lord commands a blessing. Psalm 133, verses 1 to 3. And I close with a prayer. From God with us, our Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. And he still dwells among us by his spirit. The prayer is found in John 17, 21 and 22. Speaking to the disciples that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, just as we are one. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for who we are. Who we are in Christ. That your presence dwells with us, Lord. That you are building and forming your church to your exact specifications. We thank you, Lord, that we can co-labor in the process here. Holy Spirit, lead us, guide us. May we maintain a biblical unity, a biblical truth, building on true biblical foundations in this church. And may we take this presence of God out from the church. And may you be glorified in us, in Jesus' name. Amen.